Today I'm talking to Victoria Beeler. Victoria is a butterfly enthusiast and enjoys gardening, wildlife, nature and learning. She and her family have helped with the Smith Gilbert Gardens butterfly exhibit in Kennesaw, Georgia, USA. For the first time last fall, they raised monarch butterflies from eggs to caterpillars to chrysalis and to emerging butterflies in an outdoor butterfly habitat at home near Atlanta and then released them into the wild to migrate. She has written a fabulous illustrated guide called Journey with Monarchs, a personal experience of raising and releasing monarchs in the home garden. So it's lovely to have you, Victoria, on the Nature Magic podcast. And I can see a beautiful butterfly behind you. And can you just introduce yourself and what you're going to talk about to the listeners? Yes, thank you so much, Mary. My name is Victoria Beeler, and I am a butterfly enthusiast. So my family and I have raised and released monarch butterflies in our garden at home in Atlanta, Georgia, in the USA. And we love butterflies. Oh, that's amazing. And I can see your t-shirt has a big monarch butterfly on it. Yes, so big butterfly fans. Big butterfly fans. That's so lovely. Do you remember the first time you saw a monarch or what was your first sort of experience took the butterflies to heart? Yes. Um, the first time I saw monarch butterflies was at the Smith Gilbert Gardens Butterfly House. And that is a butterfly exhibit near our home in Kennesaw, Georgia. And it was so amazing. I remember just seeing this beautifully colored orange and black and white dotted butterfly called the monarch and it really just stood out to me and seemed so special and the more my family and I volunteered there at the butterfly house the more we learned about the butterflies and the monarchs and all the different kinds of host plants and nectar plants. So it is an outdoor butterfly exhibit. So it's all in nature and it's enclosed and with a netting. And there are all kinds of different butterflies in there. And they're all native to the U.S. and including the monarch butterfly. And it is incredible with all the host and nectar plants and the different varieties of butterflies. It's a great learning experience. Through that, my family and I have learned about the butterflies and have appreciated those resources so much. And my grandpa, which I call Papa, he he loves building things and he loves to invent things. And so he found a YouTube channel called the Mr. Lund Science YouTube channel. And on there, it is a lot of videos on how to raise and release monarchs at home. And so Papa showed me those videos and he was like, Victoria, do you think we could try it? And I said, yeah, Papa, let's go for it. So with him loving to invent things, he built an outdoor butterfly house in our garden. And it is so incredible (laughs) so that we can try to raise and release the monarchs at our home in our garden and see the whole life stages. Oh, wow. That is such a wonderful story and so nice to do it with your grandfather. And how big is your butterfly house? 
Yes, um, it is about six feet tall by six feet wide. So it's tall and wide enough to walk into. And it's great because we put our swamp milkweed plants. Milkweed is a host plant for the monarch butterfly. So we plant the plants in nursery containers and put them on a dolly cart and transfer them to the outdoor butterfly house so that when the monarch female lays her eggs on the milkweeds, we can move those plants into the butterfly house so the eggs can place from predators like wasps, ants, and birds. Oh, that's so fascinating. Could you tell us about the amazing journey that the monarch butterfly um, takes every year? Yes. So monarchs are mostly found in North America and Mexico, and they are declining due to habitat loss and loss of milkweed, which is their host plant. So basically what a host plant is, is it's what the female butterflies lay their eggs on. And then that's what, when the caterpillars hatch from the eggs, the caterpillars eat on the host plant. So that is, the host plant is like a food source. So basically the monarchs are very special, not just because they're a threatened butterfly species, but because the fourth generation monarchs born late summer, early fall, like the ones that we raised and released in our garden, they migrate to Mexico in the fall on a 3,000 mile journey and overwinter there in the Sierra Madre Mountains and roost in oil fir tree forest. And it usually they take, they start departing to Mexico in October and then they get there usually in December and they form their colonies there near the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve and Michoacan, Mexico. And then in February, they start waking up out of hibernation and they start breaking out of their clusters and becoming more active. And then by March, these fourth generation monarchs, which by the way, can live eight to nine months, they can start laying eggs. Well, at that point around March, they pass away, but their offspring, the new first generation, travel starts the journey north into North America. So the previous, the fourth generation monarchs do reach northern Mexico or southern parts of the U.S. and they lay their eggs there, then they pass away. But their offspring, the first generation, carries the torch, so to speak, and and goes farther into North America. And it can take amazingly three to four monarch generations to fully reach North America. Oh, my goodness, that's incredible. So how exactly does that happen? I mean, it's so difficult to understand how nature knows what to do. So, yeah, could you talk us through the different generations? Absolutely. So how it works is the fourth generation of monarchs that go to Mexico in the fall, because butterflies are cold-blooded, they need to be in warm temperatures. So they go south in the fall to stay warm and to survive. And so they, so their generation, after they pass away in the spring, like around March, their eggs, the new first generation, when they make it to a butterfly, that first generation really carries the legacy and they start migrating northward, north, back to North America. And so that's the first generation. So I would say the first generation reaches southern 
U.S., the southern United States, and then the second generation moves farther north into North America. And then the second generation probably gets here around May. And mm -hmm. so that's early summer. And then the third generation monarchs are, which is the mother monarch who laid the eggs for our fourth generation monarchs last, last fall in our garden. She and her third generation, they are probably in July and August in the summer, kind of late summer. Then um, the fourth generation, which are born, um, let's say early, late summer, early fall, are the ones that will migrate to Mexico. And so it's very interesting how, for example, this year's fourth generation monarchs are the great, great grandchildren of last year's fourth generation monarchs. So <laughs> it's like a multi-generational journey. That is absolutely incredible. And how do they know to, how to do that? I mean, instinctiveness is just uh, very hard to understand, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. It's really incredible because, you know, the monarchs, they migrate in the spring and go northward all throughout the United States, all the way up to Canada. And then in the fall, they go all the way back down to Mexico and come back up. And they know how to migrate because they have almost like a GPS system in their antennae, in their filaments. Wow. So they know how to get there. They use the position of the sun and the Earth's magnetic field, as well as land features and air currents to glide on. So they use environmental cues, and they also use their internal biological compass cues to know how to get where they need to go. Yes, I think the internal biological compass is something that we find it hard to understand. Um, yes. Yeah, the birds also use, and it's like really a sixth sense for them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And what's so amazing about monarchs as well is that they are the only butterfly species known to make a two-way migration like birds. So birds, as you just mentioned, they migrate twice a year usually in the spring and in the in the fall and so that's the way monarchs are and it's so incredible how nature is complex and so fascinating yes so complex um really wonderful what a wonderful story for the listeners to hear about especially if they're not living in america and they might not be familiar with the monarch butterflies um so can you tell us a little about a bit about the life cycle um when they're breeding in your butterfly garden absolutely so when the monarch female butterfly lays her eggs on our milkweed plants in our garden, then we bring the milkweed plants into our outdoor butterfly house and the eggs hatch in a safe place from predators. It's so amazing to see the whole life cycle. So within three to four days, the eggs will hatch and then little caterpillars, baby monarchs will hatch and emerge. And another name for caterpillar is larva. So they will be a caterpillar for up to two weeks depending on the air temperature if it's warmer outside it'll be maybe shorter um, and then if it's cooler outside it'll be maybe take a little longer so there'll be a caterpillar for up to two weeks and within that caterpillar phase 
they have five instars, and an instar is a stage of development between molts. So because insects are like butterflies, are invertebrates, um, and in this case, caterpillars, we they have to shed their skin every time they grow and get bigger because they don't have a backbone like we do. So they have what they call molts, where they they will the monarch caterpillar will molt five times and shed their outer layer of skin, and so those are called five instars. So then, once the caterpillar reaches the fifth instar, which is the last stage of development as a caterpillar, then they'll stop eating on their host plant, which in this case is milkweed for monarchs. Then they'll start wandering to form their chrysalis. And another word for chrysalis is pupa. So they'll be a, they'll form a chrysalis and they usually, the monarch caterpillars like to climb up for height and they hang upside down in a J position and they hang upside down in a J because they when they become a butterfly they use gravity and it helps the wings dry better so then they'll hang upside down in J for up to 18 hours then the monarch will form a chrysalis and then it'll be in the chrysalis for about two weeks. Again, that depends on the temperature. If it's warmer, it'll be shorter, or if it's cooler, maybe a little longer. So in the chrysalis, about up to two weeks. And then guess what? The monarch is called a monarch because it's very distinct. The The chrysalis has a gold crown on it. <laughs> so near the top of it is a gold crown called the diadem. And those are made by special pigments called carotenoids from the monarch caterpillar's milkweed diet as a caterpillar. So those pigments are not real gold, but they do reflect and sparkle in the sunlight. And what's interesting is that the monarch chrysalis looks like a leaf almost. It uses camouflage to blend in with its surroundings to give it protection. And it's also important to note that when it takes about 24 hours for that monarch chrysalis to dry and solidify. At first, it'll be really liquidy and kind of wet. It'll almost resemble like a wet beehive kind of shape. And then once it dries about after 24 hours, then it'll be a, this beautiful jade-like ornament. And it's so beautiful. And then, and then about it'll start turning clear. So the chrysalis will start turning from green to clear about 24 hours before the monarch butterfly will emerge. Then guess what? A beautiful butterfly will emerge. And it has now reached the full life cycle from egg all the way to butterfly. Now, um, it's <laughs> so amazing. And monarch butterflies usually live up to five weeks unless they're the fourth generation monarchs that migrate they live up to eight to nine months wow yeah that's an amazing description thank you so much for that it really brought it to life for the listeners i had no idea about the gold crown um yes. it's uh, they, uh, we'll put some pictures up on instagram as instagram as well and do all the uh, butterflies synchronize their breeding stages or do they all do it at different times um, they can do it at different times. Most butterflies tend to breed in the spring and summer. Those are the best times because that's when it's usually warmest. And then 
Now there are some butterflies that don't migrate. Some butterflies and moths that don't migrate are um, like for Georgia in the United States, our state butterfly is the tiger swallowtail. So they overwinter in the ground as a chrysalis and then emerge in the spring as a butterfly. Mm -hmm. Another example of that would be a moth and it's called the oak beauty moth. And they also overwinter in the ground as a caterpillar or as a cocoon um, and so moths have cocoons butterflies have chrysalis and then they emerge in the spring as a moth oh that's a lovely description as well so your chrysalis for the monarchs um are they all there at the same time or do you have different stages of the cycle within your breeding um, area um, usually, so what we noticed in our garden is from the very beginning, when the monarch female butterfly laid her eggs, she laid them all on the same day. So we thought that would make it easy because maybe then they would hatch on the same time mm -hmm. within three to four days later. Well, what we found is even though they all were laid on the same day, they actually had different hatching times. So some of the monarch caterpillars hatched within that three to four time. And then, and then the other half of the caterpillars hatched maybe like a few days beyond that. So then that meant that they, those caterpillars that hatched earlier, they would form their chrysalis, um, their chrysalides a little earlier than the ones that were hatching a little later. And then that would mean that the, when they became butterflies, those caterpillars that had were hatching earlier, they would become butterflies sooner than um, the ones that were born later. Mm -hmm. So it kind of is so interesting how it's a little staggered. Yeah, maybe it's staggered to lessen the vulnerability from yes. yeah weather or predators or something like that. That's very interesting. And yes. um, have you had any special experience with the butterflies since you were raising them? Yes. So every butterfly we raised and released, we had nine butterflies and a hundred percent success rate, which is incredible. And by the way. There's only a 1% survival rate in the wild for monarchs and other butterflies, so it's important to help them. But I did have a special experience with the butterflies we raised and released. Um, the, each one had their own personalities, <laughs> and one of them, the first one, Autumn, she was born on the first day of fall last year, so I named her Autumn, and she was so sweet, and so we opened the butterfly house, the netting, and when we released her, we got a flower from our garden, and she was getting nectar from it, and warming her wings in the sunshine, and then she quietly fluttered away and and hopefully migrated to Mexico and then the seventh monarch butterfly her name was Zoe and Zoe was extra special because when she was emerging as a butterfly she was seemed a little sick or energy depleted so we gave her some butter, some nectar from flowers. And then we also, or rather we gave her flowers so that she could get nectar. And then we also gave her some orange and banana slices. And I also wasn't feeling well that day. So within a few hours, we both researched together. <laughs> and <laughs> Zoe fluttered around and got stronger flying around in our butterfly house. And then we released her and 
she truly left such an amazing impact on my life. And, and I named her Zoe because Zoe means life. And she reminds me of what a blessing and gift nature is and how we can help them and give back and how everything is interconnected. And my hope is that Zoe and all the other butterflies migrated and continued their amazing legacy and how their stories connect everything in the tapestry of life. That is so beautifully put and such an insightful story for everybody to hear, Victoria. Really, you speak so well about them. Thank you so much. And they, they teach us such a lot about um, perseverance and the intelligence of nature that we can't understand and also the beauty of nature. Do you have a message for people a suggestion as to what they can do to help support nature. And you did send me a lovely sheet of things you had suggested for people. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. But mm -hmm. a couple of things that you might suggest for people that can help either the monarchs in America or any other aspects of nature. Absolutely. Nature is such a blessing. And some ways that we can help nature are by creating a natural habitat in our yards and communities to support the full life cycles and food webs of local biodiversity and to restore species populations. So if we can try to have a garden or like a little mini prairie or a mini meadow in our yards and communities, that would provide like a breeding and nectaring stopover, a place like a refuge for butterflies, moths, birds, and all of nature, wildlife, and so creating a welcoming place for nature. And that also is a way for humans, people to enjoy it and to connect with nature and each other as well. And then to try to let the garden grow naturally. And importantly, to provide host and nectar plants for the butterflies. For instance, the monarch's host plant is milkweed. And some of the other butterflies in Ireland are like um, thistles are for painted lady butterflies. And in America, we also have painted ladies here. Mm. And like violets are for the fritillary butterfly. So Ireland and the U.S. have that butterfly. And like nettle for the comma butterfly, the red admiral, the peacock, and the tortoiseshell, and then clovers for the clouded yellow butterfly or um, other kinds like the, for instance, from America, um, the spring and summer azure butterflies and um, the eastern tailed blue. So mm -hmm. if we can incorporate those host plants, which are what the caterpillars eat on, and then if we can also provide nectar plants, and especially ones that are native, like sedum, verbena, sage, and then some from the U.S., like black-eyed Susan, purple coneflowers, and mountain mint. Amazing. Yeah. And I think we have a big patch of um, thistles in our hay meadow. And some of the local farmers were commenting, you know, oh, you need to control those. You need to get rid of the thistles. They're going to take over everywhere. Um, and so far, we have left the thistles to do their own thing because we yes. know they're helpful to pollinators. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we just have to become a little bit more accepting of plants that we used to believe were weeds and are actually an yes. essential part of the ecosystem. And yes, these so little, mean. yeah, these little islands of hope like your garden are so mm. 
so important. And also it made me think um, of the difficulty of migration of people at the moment that we hear about and how the butterflies have no problem with physical boundaries. Right, yes. And if we can just, the butterflies remind me that everything in life is interconnected. And so when I see a butterfly, it reminds me of hope and perseverance and that they are survivors and how life is precious and how everything is connected and how we are better together. Absolutely. What a wonderful, um, what a wonderful thing to say, Victoria, to finish off about the monarchs. And I have seen videos on YouTube of the monarchs in Mexico when they um, come out of their chrysalis and all fly back to America, which is really outstanding to see that. Yes, yes. And another great way that we can help butterflies and all of nature is to provide shelter for the non-migratory overwintering butterflies and moths. So in other words, we can leave some leaf litter for the moth caterpillars and, and any kind of insects. And insects are also great food sources for birds. And so it's also important to maybe leave some plant stems, which provide nesting cavities for native bee species, and then fallen logs and branches, which are like nesting sites also for bees, and leaving some bundles of sticks or a brush pile for birds and other animals to nest, and to have leave some weeds, like you were saying, because they are beneficial, and they are host plants to some butterflies and moths, and just importantly to remember that nature is a blessing and and when we can welcome nature it's also so rewarding and a great experience to just enjoy and appreciate what we see in our yards and in our communities and and I've also found some great resources. Um, for instance, in the U.S., um, there's what's called citizen and community science, which is basically how people in the community can help the scientists um, attract the butterflies, whether that's through butterfly tagging or through butterfly counts. And in the U.S., there's Monarch Watch, which is a monarch organization, and they have some great um, monarch tagging kits available. And then the North American Butterfly Association's Butterfly Counts. And then for Ireland, I found some great resources, if anyone's interested, um, how to help the butterflies is it's called the Irish Butterfly Monitoring Scheme, and mm -hmm. it's a part of the National Biodiversity Data Center, and it's where people can note the butterfly populations and habitat availability. And then there's also a Butterfly Conservation's Big Butterfly Count, where um, the butterflies can be counted in the garden. And then um, the I Butterfly Conservation Ireland's National Garden Butterfly Survey, where you can also record the butterfly scene in your garden. So yeah, those are some you. great resources. They are very good resources, and especially the National Biodiversity Data Center, they have an app which is really easy to use, and it's for citizen scientists. If you see something, you can take a photograph, drop a pin for a location, and just add it to their records. So that's great advice, and thank you so much, Victoria, for such a wonderful message of hope and a really uplifting, positive story about nature. Um, I really appreciate that. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Mary.
News from Borough Nature Sanctuary. We had a brief Indian summer for the second week of September, with temperatures as high as 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit, meeting heatwave status, nearly meeting the highest ever recorded temperature for September in Ireland of 29 degrees Celsius, set at Kildare on September the 1st, 1906. Honot was 2.4 degrees Celsius above its long-term average for September. This sunny period was then followed by heavy rain, but it allowed us a perfect window to cut the meadow. The haylage was left to wilt for two days and was then shaken and turned, allowing all the wildflower seeds a chance to distribute. We harvested 50 big round bales of organic haylage, suitable for cattle and horses. Frank the llama and our goats Frisky, Chino and Mocha have enjoyed gambling around the meadow that they haven't set foot in since January. The cattle will be let out when we close for the season at the start of November and they will do their conservation work of removing tough grasses around the headlands and in spots that the tractor cannot reach. As soon as they've grazed out the meadow, they will be moved to the rotating paddocks to eat the round bales of haylage over the winter. The meadow will be closed off to stock on the 1st of February, allowing the wildflowers and orchids to grow. In other news, the Plant Sciences Department from the University of Galway picked another sunny day for their field trip. As we are closed in the weekdays at the moment, I have started back training environmental sustainability awareness with my first group this autumn of 12 trainee bus drivers. Congratulations to Chi Sum Chong, the first student on this 50-hour QQI Level 5 course being rolled out by the government through SOLACE to achieve 100%.